Everyone has experiences that are not only personal, but also national and global in their scope. We can remember with vivid clarity where we were and what we were doing when we heard any particular news. For example, there are still some individuals who can remember with vivid clarity the events of December the 7th, 1941. It was in the early hours of that Sunday morning when the Japanese military rudely popped over the Hawaiian horizon and bombed Pearl Harbor, marking the entrance of America into World War II. In all of America's history, this has to be one of the greatest sucker punches this nation has ever endured. Still other individuals can remember the mournful events of November the 22nd, 1963. It was on that day that the presidential convertible motorcade made its way through the streets of Dallas, Texas. A shot was fired and it killed the president, John F. Kennedy. Still, most of us can remember with great detail where we were and what we were doing on Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. We remember how those planes were hijacked and flown into the Twin Towers of New York City. We watched in horror how those steel structures collapsed into a pile of rubble. Some 3,000 people lost their lives that day. These and several other events are not only personal to us, they're also national and global in their scope. That's not particular just to the citizens of the United States of America. That happens to every generation, all people, any nation. The nation of Israel is no different. In fact, such an event took place in 740 B.C. I know that sounds like a mighty long time ago because it was, but even though that's an ancient date, it still was a very significant event, not only for Israel, but even for you and for me. The story is retold for us in Isaiah chapter 6. It's to that passage I invite you to take a Bible and turn. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 6, allow me to begin at verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. They were calling one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. 
Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding, Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uzziah was made king of the southern kingdom of Judah at the age of 16. Before he had even graduated high school, grown facial hair, or was able to drive his father's chariot, he was given the keys of the kingdom. He ruled and reigned for 52 years. In 2 Chronicles, we read that King Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. In other words... He was a good king. Under his rule and reign, he defeated the Philistines. The nation expanded. The military grew strong. The economy grew even greater. His popularity went all throughout the nation, even extended beyond the borders of Israel. He was a good king. Uzziah was a powerful king. But this powerful king became a prideful king. One day he entered the temple and he burned incense. That may not sound like a great offense to you, but according to the law of Moses, no king was to do the task of a priest. And the burning of incense was something that was to be done only by a capable priest. The priest of the temple, they urged Uzziah not to do this defiant thing before the Lord, but he responded in rebellion. He burned incense that day, and the Lord struck him with leprosy. Leprosy was the dreaded skin disease of the Bible. Many times it resulted in fatality. The scripture tells us that Uzziah had leprosy, and he died. The year was 740 B.C. It was a catastrophic event. It was an event that everyone in the southern kingdom of Judah and in the nation beyond remembered well. They knew where they were and what they were doing when they heard the news that the great king Uzziah had died. Let's put it in perspective. He ruled and reigned for 52 years. For many people, including the prophet Isaiah, he was probably the only king that many people had ever known. He was a good king. He did many great things for the nation of Judah. But the powerful king became a prideful king, and he died. 
in the midst of that tragedy, in the midst of that catastrophe, in, 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 the, in the middle of all the wheels falling off for so many individuals, life turned upside down, topsy-turvy. It is the prophet Isaiah who declares, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on his throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Don't miss the irony. Don't miss the analogy. What Isaiah the prophet is telling the people of God is that while it's true that the earthly king is dead, the king of all kings is very much alive. The earthly king died in the temple. But the king of all kings is seated very much alive at home in the temple. The earthly king was disobedient, rebellious. But the king of all kings is displayed in all of his splendor. For he's high and exalted. He's seated for his work is done. The earthly king had his throne taken from him. But the king of all kings is seated on his throne both now and forevermore. The earthly king was disobedient, but the heavenly king is righteous in all of his eternity. Don't miss the analogy. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Don't miss the principle. The principle is that even when everything in your life is turned upside down, there's still hope. Because our God is triumphant even in tragedy. So that we can declare our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but we wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand because all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. So, when cancer invade your body unannounced and uninvited, I want you to know that the king of all kings is still on his throne. When the foul stench of death saturates your house, steals the life of one of your loved ones, I want you to know that the king of all kings is still on his throne. When unemployment follows you home, I want you to know that the king of all kings is still on his throne. When a husband of some 32 years cheats on you, when a wife is no longer faithful unto you, I want you to know that the king of all kings is still on his throne when a child breaks your heart and wanders off into the far country I want you to know that the king of all kings is still on his throne when you endure suffering and tragedy and heartache I want you to know that the king of all kings is still on his throne when people speak bad against you when family members turn against you when co-workers stab you in the back I want you to know that the king of all kings is still on his throne in the year that king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. You and I have no idea what's going to happen in 2017. We stand here on the very first Sunday of a brand new year. And we don't know the success and we don't know the setbacks. When we come together a year from now and we're seated in the very same spot, there may be some of us who have moved away or graduated to heaven. There may be people here and there will be people here that we've not yet met. 
regardless of what we experience over the next 12 months, I want you to know that the King of Kings is still on his throne. Our hope is not in governmental officials. Our hope is not in earthly kings. Our hope is not in monetary gain. Our hope is not in the feeling that things may get better before they get worse. Oh no, our hope is built on Jesus Christ, the King of all kings, so that you and I can declare, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. And this Lord is seated on his throne for his work is done. He's high and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah says he's surrounded by six-winged creatures called seraphs. A seraph is like an angelic creature. It was Alec Motier in his commentary on Isaiah who said, with two wings they covered their faces because they could not behold the splendor of God. So they had to cover their eyes. But they did not cover their ears because they were created to the bidding of the Master. Whatever the instruction was that He gave, they had to hear and had to simultaneously obey. So with two wings, they covered their eyes, their faces, not their ears. With two wings, they covered their feet as if to say, we are not going in our own direction, down our own path, for we exist to go where you tell us to go, O Master. And with two wings, they were flying. Because you and I both know that flying is the fastest mode of transportation to get from point A to point B. And they didn't want to lollygag around. They wanted to go immediately for when God told them to go here or there. They wanted to be there as quickly as possible. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they were flying. They were flying all over the sanctuary. And they had one song on their lips. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. The very foundation of the temple rocked and reeled in the rhythm of the song. For the doorpost and threshold shook and the whole temple was filled with smoke. Ironically, uh, this seems to be a pretty popular song in the Bible. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, it seems that the second verse of the same song is sung by angels. For it's there, as they are there before the throne of God, and they see the Lamb of God, the angels and the elders and all the people in heaven, they gather and proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the God who was and is and is to come. Interestingly, this is the only word that's used in the Bible, in its triple superlative fashion to describe the character of God. You think about that. There are many words that can be used to describe and portray God's character. You and I would agree that God is love, but nowhere in the Bible do you find a description of God that says he is love, love, love. You and I would agree that God is grace, But nowhere in the 66 books of the Bible do you find a description of God as being grace, grace, grace. God is certainly forgiving. You and I can give testimony to that. 
But nowhere in the Bible does it describe God as forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. Now, don't miss the point. Yes, God certainly is love and grace and forgiving. But the only word in all of Scripture that's ever used to describe God in a triple superlative fashion is this word holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It seems that from the authors of the Scripture that the only word, the best word to describe our God is that word holy. You and I cannot make too much of this. We we can't um, overdo this. To say that God is holy is to say that he is uniquely different than all of creation. He is set apart. He is perfect. He is pure. He is holy. He does everything right. He can't do anything wrong. He is holy. Isaiah was seeing God in all of his splendor And that display of God's splendor was revealed in his holiness. So how do you respond to that? I'll tell you what Isaiah did. Isaiah said, woe to me. I am ruined. This is the seventh woe thus far in the book of Isaiah. In the previous chapter, there are six woes. The prophet of God levels six woes against the people of God in Isaiah chapter 5. We find it in in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8, verse 11, verse 18, verse 20, verse 21, and in verse 22. On six occasions, the prophet stands before the people and says, woe to you. But here in Isaiah chapter 6, we find the seventh woe. That number seven is a number of totality and completion. And now the seventh woe is not leveled against the people of God, but the prophet of God. Woe to me. I'm in the same lot that you're in. You and I are equally and totally and utterly sinful before the Lord. Woe to me, Isaiah declared. I am ruined. The word ruined means undone. As good as dead. His goose is cooked. It means that it's over. And why is it over? Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When Isaiah stood before the holiness of God, his sinfulness was revealed to himself. And he realized that as he stood in his sinfulness, there was no way he could personally withstand the holiness of God. So he said, I'm as good as dead For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. I find it interesting that where Isaiah was most aware of his sinfulness was through his speech, the words that he said, how he spoke. I guess that may mean that Isaiah had a potty mouth. Maybe he cursed like a sailor. Maybe he told some vulgar jokes. I don't know. Or better yet, Isaiah probably understood what Jesus would say years later. That out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isaiah understood that his sin was revealed by his words. And his words were an indictment of his heart for it revealed the total depravity and the complete sinfulness of his inward existence. And so he was completely and utterly sinful. I live among a 
people of unclean lips. I have unclean lips. All of us are completely sinful. Maybe your sin is most uh, obvious to you in the same way that it was to Isaiah. Maybe it's your words that get you in trouble. Maybe you're guilty of lying or slander or gossip. Maybe you speak foul language. Maybe you tell those off-color jokes, those ones with sexual innuendos. Maybe you're crude in your language. Maybe it's the way you say what you say. But regardless, you're aware of your sinfulness. It seeps out. It blasts out through barbed-wired words. It, it comes out of your lips, and because of your lips, it reveals what's in your heart. All you have to do is eavesdrop on somebody's conversation, especially when they don't know that you're listening, and it reveals who they really are. All you have to do is just eavesdrop. You can listen to how people speak, and that reveals what's in their heart. Maybe some of you this morning say, you know, I don't really identify with Isaiah in that way. I don't have an issue with foul language or what I speak or even how I say it. I really try to think about what I say and how I say it. I, that's, the, that's not my issue. Maybe your issue is some other sin. Maybe yours is anger or greed or materialism, lust, pornography, selfishness. For you and I both know that at the heart of all sin is selfishness. At the heart of all selfishness is sin. And maybe you say unto the Lord, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it and how I want to do it. And nobody's going to tell me otherwise. Regardless, when you stand in front of a holy God, you must become aware of your sinfulness. Let me say it another way. If you are not fully aware of your sinfulness, then you've probably never truly stood before the holiness of God. I'm not saying that you've never been to church. I'm not even saying that you've never been through the waters of baptism. I'm just saying you've never truly experienced God. Because if you and I experience the biblical God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, if we experience the Trinitarian God, we will have to view Him in His holiness. That's the one word that seems to describe Him. Holy, holy, holy. So if you really encounter God, you must encounter His holiness. And when you encounter His holiness, it must reveal your utter sinfulness so that you say with Isaiah, woe is me, I'm cooked, I'm undone, I'm unglued, I'm as good as dead. And then I want you to see what God did next. This whole passage is all God-driven. It is God who takes the initiative to forgive Isaiah. It is at God's expense that Isaiah is forgiven. It is God who gives a word of instruction to one of those seraphs. I want you to take a live coal from the altar of God. And with it, I want you to touch Isaiah's lips. The altar of God, that place of sacrifice. It is God who is the proper priest. It is, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is the king of all kings. And unlike Uzziah, uh, the Lord is very appropriate to serve as the priest in the temple. He can offer sacrifice. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So this is God's altar. And from God's altar, that place of sacrifice and forgiveness. 
The Lord says, I want you to take a live coal, which means a coal that's on fire. Fire is a symbol of the burning away of impurities. It's an emblem of God's holiness. And the Lord said to the seraph, and the seraph is just a a mouthpiece for God. And then the Lord says to the seraph, through the seraph, I want you to take this live coal and I want you to touch Isaiah's lips. He doesn't take the coal and touch Isaiah's head or Isaiah's heart or Isaiah's feet or kick him in Isaiah's backside. He takes the live coal and touches it in Isaiah's lips. That place where Isaiah was most aware of his sinfulness. Because when you and I encounter a holy God, we are made most aware of our sinfulness and it's where God's holiness is applied to our sinfulness that grace occurs. It is God, at God's initiative and at God's expense, who offers forgiveness for Isaiah. And when God forgives, he forgives completely and thoroughly. His forgiveness is free, it is forever. It's forgiveness from the inside out. I want you to hear what God said and how he said it. See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Do you see the order in which God speaks to the prophet? Do you see the order in which he speaks it? You and I would have to agree that most sin, not all sin, but most sin is done outside the body. And guilt for sin is carried inside the body. You may be able to see guilt on some people's faces. They may be so overcome with guilt that it's etched on their brow. You can see it in their eyes. But some of us masquerade pretty well, don't we? We know how to cover up guilt. We know how to suppress it. We can't remove it, but we know how to shove it down. What does God say to Isaiah? I'm going to deal with your forgiveness from the inside out. Your guilt is taken away. Cast as far as the east is from the west. When God forgives you, you have no reason to feel guilty over your past sin. God has dealt with it. Totally and completely. Your guilt is taken away. There's no reason for you to retrieve it. There's no reason for you to grab a hold of it. There's no reason for you to take it uh, through the streets of your existence. If God has forgiven your guilt, then you need to forgive your own guilt. Your guilt is taken away. Where is it taken? I don't know, but it's away as far as the east is from the west. And your sin is atoned for. That word atoned means covered. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So God has covered Isaiah's sin by the blood of the lamb. His sin is atoned for. So God not only deals with the dirty deed, but he also deals with the guilt that's associated with the dirty deed. So God's forgiveness is thorough and complete. God forgives us from the inside out. What God does for Isaiah, he wants to do for you and for me. Some of you know this through experience. I know it through experience. I know what it is to stand before a holy God and my own sinfulness to stare me in the face and God at his initiative and by his expense, he has offered my forgiveness. Because it's God who sent Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, 
And Jesus died on your cross. Jesus died on my cross. He took the punishment that we deserve. He is our substitute. He is our atonement. He is our sacrifice. He is our covering. His righteousness covers over all of our sinfulness. And Jesus died on a cross. He was placed into a a tomb. And on the third day, he was raised back to life to give you eternal life. And so when you and I come to him by faith, we give him our sin. He gives us his holiness and our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for. This is a mighty good time for a hallelujah moment. This is a great time for God's people to get happy in God's house. For if you know who God is and you see him in his holiness and you know your own self and all your sinfulness and if you've experienced the grace of God and the forgiveness of our Lord Jesus Christ, then you know what it is for your guilt to be taken away and your sin atoned for. This is where far too many believers get snagged. People get stuck in the guilt of their past sin. And if I could talk to you one-on-one, and if I were to ask you, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Oh, yes, pastor, I do. Do you know that your sin is forgiven? Oh, yes, I know my sin is forgiven. Do you know your sin is under the blood of the lamb? Yes, I know, pastor. My sin is under the blood of the lamb. But pastor, I can't forgive myself for what I did. The guilt, the shame is associated with my past. Those skeletons, they still drape my spirit. And I want to say to you what the Lord said to Isaiah. If I've forgiven you, I've forgiven you completely and thoroughly from the inside out. So your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Today, on this first day of 2017, I want you to walk out of here knowing that you are free both now and forevermore. And if the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The greatest line of any song that's ever been written is the third verse of Horatio Spafford's song it is well with my soul. This is what he says. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. You know what Horatio Spafford was saying? He was saying, my guilt has been taken away and my sin has been atoned for. So then how do you respond to that? I'll tell you what Isaiah did. I don't want you to miss this. When Isaiah first encountered God, he saw God as high and exalted, and he is. But he almost saw God as unapproachable. He's high, he's exalted, he's elevated. I I can't get up to him. And why was Isaiah saying this? Because he was well aware of his own sinfulness. It was his sin that served as a barrier between him and God. And so God took the initiative and God gave forgiveness at God's expense. God always does that. It's not that Isaiah somehow forgave himself or, or, or met God halfway. No, Isaiah was dead in his sins. You and I dead in our sins. It is God who raises us in Christ Jesus. God is the one that does all the work. All we do is we just give God our sinfulness and he gives us his holiness. So 
Isaiah saw God as high and exalted, almost unapproachable. And in the process of forgiveness of sin, what God did is that God reconciled Isaiah to himself. God reconciled Isaiah, which means he began to draw him close to his precious bleeding side so that Isaiah was close enough to overhear a Trinitarian whispering. It's a Trinitarian conversation. It's an ABC conversation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That's a conversation that's Trinitarian in its scope. It's God the Father speaking to God the Son, speaking to God the Spirit. They are standing in a holy triangle. They are standing there whispering to each other, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? That's a great question. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? That's an astounding question, one we must answer. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And now because of God's gracious forgiveness, Isaiah is close enough to hear eavesdrop on the Trinitarian conversation. And Isaiah responds the only way he can respond. He responds like a second grader who finally has the right answer to the math equation. It's the second grader who says, ooh, me, 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 pick me, pick me, ooh, ooh, I know, I know, I know, pick me, pick me, here I am, send me. That's how he responds. Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And now Isaiah is close. He can eavesdrop on the Trinitarian whisperings. And he responds, not knowing where God's going to send him, not knowing what's entailed in the mission, but it really doesn't matter. He just says, ooh, you've done so much for me. Ooh, here I am. Pick me, pick me, pick me. Ooh, here I am, here I am. Me, me, me. Here I am. Send me. I find this amazing. Before Isaiah knows the assignment, he's willing to go. Here I am, send me. You've done so much for me, God. You've blessed me. You, you have saved me. You've forgiven me. You've cast my sin as far as the east is from the west. You've dealt with my guilt and my dirty deeds. Oh, Lord, here I am, send me. You do realize that when God saves you, he enlists you into a missionary society. You are saved to serve. You've been sanctified to be sent. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that great German theologian, who said the church is really only the church when it exists for others. Philip Yancey gave a rather fragrant analogy when he said the church is like manure. You pile it up, Stinks up the neighborhood. You spread it out. It enriches the world. You have been sanctified to be sent. You've been saved to serve. I find it ironic that God did not send Isaiah to Mozambique, the Ukraine, or the Northeastern Territory of the United States of America. He sent him back to his own people. Go to this people, for they will be seeing but not perceiving, hearing but not understanding. Their ears will become dull, their hearts will become calloused and hard. 
That doesn't sound very exciting, does it? It doesn't sound like a great, exciting ministry, does it? People have asked the question, God, then why send Isaiah to begin with? If people are going to be seeing but not getting it, if they're going to be hearing but not understanding it, if their hearts are going to be calloused, then why in the world send them? Well, it's not that God is toying with his people. Because if God didn't want us to get it, then he wouldn't send anybody anyway. If he didn't want us to get it, he would just leave us in our condemnation. But he does want us to get it. Therefore, he sent Jesus. Thereby, he's sending us into a lost world. Because some people do get it. Some people do respond. Some people do react in faith. Now, other people do reject the gospel. They still persist in rebellion. And as they do it, they see the gospel, but they don't see. They hear the gospel, but they don't understand. And every time they reject the gospel, their hearts become more hardened and calloused. The Lord is saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, it's going to be tough sledding. And I don't want you to be distracted. I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want you to throw in the towel. I want this fire, this zeal to never go out. You keep on telling the story. And Isaiah says, for how long? How long is it going to be like this? And the Lord answers. Until the land is ruined. Until every house is deserted. Until my people are carted off and carried away. Now what is God referring to? At least he must be referring to the Babylonian captivity. And that takes place in 586 B.C. And if you're doing the math, you realize that's 154 years after Isaiah has this vision. So in other words, what God is saying to the prophet is, your whole ministry is going to be tough. But don't get discouraged. Don't, don't throw in the towel. Don't quit. At some level, he could be saying the Babylonian captivity. At some level, this passage may not find its fulfillment until Jesus comes back. And what he could be saying to all of us is that it just might be tough sledding. But don't get discouraged. There will be a lot of people who reject the gospel, but not everybody. There will be a tenth. There will be an offering. There will be a remnant. There will be some that receive gospel in faith, just as the terebinth and the oak leave a stump. So the seed will be left in the land. It is the Apostle Paul who says the seed of Abraham is Jesus the Christ. He says that the seed of Abraham is not plural but singular. God must be referring to one seed. Who is that seed? That seed is Jesus. And those of us who follow Jesus, we are part of the stump. We are part of the remnant. We are part of the family of God. So you do not get discouraged. Do not be dismayed. Do not throw in the towel. Do not become disheartened. I don't know what 2017 holds, but regardless of what it holds, we know the one who holds 2017 in his hands. So you keep telling the good news story this is a great time to ask the question what where who since we are disciples of the lord and disciples of lifelong believing learner of christ what are you learning where since we're on mission with the master where are you going in 2017 that you're going to take the gospel where are you going and who are you trying to reach if a specific person doesn't come to mind in less than three seconds then my friend you and i are not being intentional enough What's your what, where's your where, and who's your who for 2017? What are you learning? Where are you going with the gospel? And who are you trying to reach? I come to the end of this passage, and what the Lord says to Isaiah, he says to you and to me, he says, listen, I have saved you 
to send you. You've been sanctified to be sent. And if you know God in all of his holiness, then you are aware of your sinfulness. And if you've experienced God's forgiveness, which comes at his initiative, at his expense, through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you know that you have been fully and forever saved and forgiven, and your guilt's been taken away, and your sin's been atoned for, and you are like that second grade student who has the right math answer to the equation. And when God says, whom shall I send and who will go for us, you're close enough to hear the whispering of the Trinitarian conversation, and you jump up and down and say, ooh, here am I, send me, please send me. Do you hear the whispering of God? Can you hear it this morning? This is what God is asking. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us to Ballantrae? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us to Chandelar? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us to Pelham, Helena, Alabaster, Calera, Chelsea, Hoover? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? to Peru and Africa, the Middle East, California. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us across the sanctuary to that grieving family? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us to speak to that teenager who thinks that suicide is the only option? Whom shall I send? And who will go for us to speak to that wife who feels the weight of the world on her shoulders. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Do you hear the Trinitarian whisperings? Are you close enough to hear an eavesdrop on the Trinitarian conversation? And I wonder, are there any Isaiahs in the house? Anybody who will say, ooh, here am I. Please pick me. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. If there's somebody here who has never accepted you by faith, Lord, I pray that today you reveal yourself in all of your holiness. We will see you in your splendor. Be made aware of our sinfulness and respond to the forgiveness that you initiate that is at your expense in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll respond to you in faith. Lord Jesus, please, if there's somebody here who does not know you as Savior and Lord, please let today be the day of their salvation. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, let us be drawn close to you, close enough to hear the Trinitarian whisperings. And as you say, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Let us jump up and down like a grade school boy and girl and say, ooh, pick me. I got it. Pick me. In Jesus' name, amen.